Good evening and welcome to Health Beat, the WDIY program done in conjunction with the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health. We quite often hear our co-hosts, Edward Meehan and Ronald Dendis, on this program as we discuss the social determinants of health. This is our last program of the year, and while we're happy to say we're looking forward to 2023 and another slate of interesting topics, this is a bit of a bittersweet program because our good friend Ronald Dendis is retiring. Ron, welcome to Health Beat. Thank welcome you, Greg. Back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Ron, thanks so much for coming to the station. I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to take a look back at your 25 years of outstanding service in and for our community. So once again, thanks for everything you've done. Thank you. This will be fun. Ron, you've got nearly 40 years of working in the area of helping people. You've got a master's degree from Villanova. You've always been interested in helping people. Where did this all start? How did how, how did you get interested in this? It's it's been a, an interesting journey. Uh, I graduated with a degree in criminal justice and wanted to get into corrections. And my first job, straight out of college, you know, wide-eyed twenty-two-year-old, was working in a maximum security prison, and uh, was quite an experience. Uh, but after a couple of years. I really kind of longed for what impact am I making here? Um, how do I get farther upstream? When you get folks in a correction setting, especially maximum security, you know, the book has probably already been written. It's going to be pretty hard to change what's happened in, in someone's life. And this has kind of put me on a 42-year journey to get farther upstream. What would you do in the prison? I was a uh, counselor and a teacher. What don't people know about prisons? There's, there are, um, oh boy, there's, I think there's, there's a lot. There are a lot of folks that are there because they've done some terrible things. There are other folks that are there that are victims of, of their circumstances. And I, I certainly look back at, you know, all the folks that were there for drug-related charges, um, many of them personal use, things that just kind of put them on a bad path and they were never able to recover. Was it there that you started thinking about the social determinants of health and how some of these folks might have had a different path or perhaps could leave and then be on a better path? Yeah, the, the, and we weren't calling them social determinants of health back then, but uh, but yeah, I knew there had to be some better way. So I left corrections I left prison and moved into probation parole, thinking that, boy, if I could if I could work with folks before they were incarcerated, maybe we'd have a better chance for success. Would you oftentimes get the people before they were in prison, or did, you know, would they maybe be sentenced to uh, situations where uh, you're on parole or probation, and maybe have a chance to help folks there? The the theme that kind of ran through my probation parole career was uh, this was Lower Bucks County in the late 1980s, and if you're familiar with Lower Bucks County, just outside of North Philly, and everybody there was a, an incredible methamphetamine epidemic going on at that particular time. Bucks County was the methamphetamine capital of the United States. And so I'm getting, you know, folks on my caseload that are meth addicts and you can keep locking them up, but what good does that do? So it took me down a path of how do you start addressing 
again, the social determinants, not knowing what this was as a 26-year-old, but really starting to identify how do, you, how do we get these folks into treatment? How do we help them with their circumstances as a way of keeping them out of prison? So when you're that age and you go into a situation like that, do you ever ask yourself, how did I end up on this side of the table sitting here with people my age? Absolutely, Greg. You know, one of the things that have always run through my head was, is there but by the grace of God go I? You know, there are two or three circumstances in my life that had they gone differently would have led to a very different future for for myself. So, yeah, I'm always very appreciative of the privilege of the breaks that were given to me that haven't been given to so many other folks in our country. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes we we feel a little lucky. I think sometimes you wonder how I you do. got to where you wonder where how you got to where you are now, and you know a full uh, career and retiring. It's a big, uh, always a big question. I think for us when we live in the United States, especially uh, as a as a white male. Yeah, um, I stopped taking that for granted many years ago, and really appreciate the the privilege that has been granted to me throughout my life. So after working in the corrections area, what was next? Everybody was uh, on my caseload was uh, involved with drugs, alcohol, or had some kind of mental health issue. I found that locking folks up just wasn't the answer. So I started running drug and alcohol sessions for probation parolees with uh, some colleagues of mine that were ran a licensed drug and alcohol agency, and that got me into the drug and alcohol field. So was a counselor in substance abuse and became a county drug and alcohol administrator running county-funded and state-federal-funded programs to help folks with their addictions. At that time, were there any similarities between what we see today and uh, what you saw then? Very. So coming off of the meth epidemic, we were followed up by um, a heroin epidemic. So you've got a lot of needle exchange, you know, a lot of needle use going on here, no needle exchange programs. This is coming at the, you know, the beginning of the 1990s as AIDS, HIV AIDS was becoming an issue. So now you're going from folks that were struggling with addiction issues to now folks that are struggling with addiction issues and HIV. I was finding that many of the folks that we were working with were at incredibly high risk for HIV or already infected. So, you know, once again, the factors determine my career path. So moved from uh, drug and alcohol treatment into uh, HIV AIDS services and became the uh, director of AIDSnet, which is the uh, local six county planning and prevention and fiscal agent for HIV services. Did this for four years in the 1990s. Again, was very fortunate in the sense that the the week that I started was the week that protease inhibitors were introduced. So this was a major turning point in HIV because it went from a death sentence to a chronic disease that could be managed. So now the entire system of HIV care and uh, prevention services really had to be revamped because of this major shift in how the disease is being treated. In your career, you are constantly dealing with uh, some of the more difficult sides of life. How do you keep your balance? How do you keep your head straight? Uh, um, sometimes sometimes that's hard. Uh, sometimes it's, it's that, that fine line between not burning out 
and not becoming so callous that it just becomes a job. So um, I've always had really great colleagues uh, that keep me grounded, great family that keep me grounded. And, you know, you're just a small part in a, in a larger system. What advice would you have to somebody who's pursuing a career like you've had? Hmm. That's a very good question, Greg. Uh, just follow your heart. I think if this, this, this really becomes a way of life, it's not a job. If you're looking for a nine to five, punch the clock, you know, eat your lunch at 12 o'clock and go home, this might not be the career for you. If you want to do something where you're making the world a better place, you're getting great satisfaction from your work, and you're able to pay your rent and uh, put food on the table, sure. um, who's luckier than us? But you have to be committed to wanting to make a better world, I think, don't you uh, really? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. That it's, it, it's not a job. It's just the way that it's the opportunity that's presented to me and the way that I've chosen to live my life. So how did you meet Edward Meehan? So I was talking about AIDSnet. Uh, when I became the, the director of AIDSnet, I stepped into this well-formed organization. And across the state of Pennsylvania, as Ryan White funding and as HIV services were just starting to take form, Pennsylvania Department of Health had carved the state up into uh, five areas and had identified a key organization to kind of be the lead for HIV AIDS services. And in the other four areas of the, of the state, there was nothing in place. In the Lehigh Valley and the surrounding counties, we had AIDSnet. And AIDSnet came about because five, six years earlier, as the epidemic was just starting, Ed Meehan and uh, some of his colleagues had the vision of how do we get ahead of this thing or how do we try and get ahead of this thing. And in early stages before anybody else was doing this work, he and other colleagues were creating AIDSnet. So I had this great fortune to step into a well-formed, well-governed organization to address HIV-AIDS issues in the Lehigh Valley and the surrounding counties, where my colleagues around the state were building this from scratch. So I first met Ed because of the great work he had done in, uh, in HIV. Now, was Ed at Ryder Pool at this he time? He was at Ryder Pool and, and the Pool Healthcare Trust, yeah. And, and, and he was... Uh, convening hospitals and key community members to really get ahead of this. We were, we were seeing in the Lehigh Valley a lot of folks coming from the big city, coming back to the Lehigh Valley to die, basically, to come back to be with family and spend their last days uh, in the Lehigh Valley. And these folks that created AIDSnet had the vision of saying, all right, how do we provide great quality care and start preparing ourselves for the epidemic that we know will eventually get here? Walk me through your experience in watching the AIDS epidemic turn into something that you could live with. Boy, it was so it was so powerful. I mean, you look at the LGBTQ plus movement now and the great work that's being done by advocates. Boy, back in the 80s and 90s, that work was just so, so important. And the things that uh, the stigma and things that folks living with HIV had to go through were just unbearable. So, you know, humbly being a part of that process was, was quite moving. Uh, and also working with a population who were living with HIV, and HIV wasn't even, the, even in the top 10 problems that plagued their lives. So this was really the first major introduction to this idea of social determinants. And if you really want to get at 
helping somebody uh, and and helping someone live with a chronic disease, but you know, they they don't have a refrigerator to keep food in, which they have to eat with their medication. Yeah. They don't have stable housing. They don't have a support system. You can't improve health without identifying and addressing those other things. So was Ryder Pool already into the social determinants of health during the AIDS epidemic, or was this sort of a natural progression? I think that uh, they certainly bought that theme of what are the factors. The, one of the ways that I got to know Ed was uh, the Pool Healthcare Trust had provided AIDSnet with a grant to address housing. So, you know, we, we were just um, – the, the federal organization, HUD, was just starting to, to dabble in this area of how do we make housing dollars available for people with HIV. Uh, and once again, Pool Trust was kind of ahead of the curve on that. And take us back. Why is that important? When you think of helping people with HIV in housing – it's not a medical type thing, right? But you know, how, show us. But think, think about uh, needing a stable place to, to live. You need an address in order to get the medications that you need, in order to have a, a medical assistance card that will help you get the, uh, the health care that you need. You need a safe place to live. You need a place that has heat and electricity. And in the summer, you know, air conditioning or at least a box fan. I mean, you're living with a chronic disease that requires a pretty rigorous lifestyle to, uh, to keep you healthy. Ryder Pool has done an outstanding job building that support system, I guess you would call it, in order to get better or to continue a path toward better health. Have we come as far as you could have imagined with the AIDS epidemic, or you, do you still think, boy, you know, we're, we're not quite there yet? It's we we've come an incredibly long way, and and uh, certainly the advances in medication and in treatment, where you can be HIV positive and basically be undetectable, is pretty remarkable. When when I I hearken back to those early days, we thought through protease inhibitors we could buy you know five, ten, fifteen years, and now it's just remarkable where healthcare has taken us. However, that doesn't address the fact that HIV, as, as we see with many other chronic diseases, disproportionately impacts poor folks and people of color. So, you know, the best medications and the best healthcare treatment is going to help in 20% of the cases. But it's that, it's that other 80%, you know, of the factors that we need to constantly be addressing. And that's where the Ryder Pool Foundation, the Pool Healthcare Trust, and now the Pool Institute for Health, although they don't directly do this, they recognize talent and figure out how to support those folks that have that vision and make sure that um, these support systems are, are in place. Take us to the federally qualified health centers. How do they form and how did you help yeah. this, the progress in the Lehigh Valley? That's such a, such a great story and such an important part of uh, access to good quality health care in the Lehigh Valley. Uh, federally qualified health centers came about in the 1960s during the Johnson administration. It was part of his great society. He was going to make sure and his administration was going to make sure that good quality health care was available to all folks uh, across the United States. And he created this legislation that allowed for community health centers to be provided that were separate from hospitals, but made it a little bit more financially beneficial to provide quality primary care to folks. 
we did not have an FQHC in the Lehigh Valley until 2012. So 50 plus years go by uh, where the Lehigh Valley just doesn't have one of these primary uh, points of access for good quality care. One of the unique things about FQHCs is they have been supported by every single presidential administration since the 1960s. Bipartisan support every single time. There's nobody politically that has been against FQHCs in the United States, and we didn't have one until 2012, and I'm really proud to have been part of the movement to establish that in, in the Lehigh Valley. Explain the movement. How did you get it going? Oh, boy. Um, we... Uh, Again, it goes back to some uh, HIV services that were being provided by not-for-profit hospitals. As these not-for-profit hospitals were being bought out by for-profit hospitals, there was concerns about what would happen to these quality clinics. And uh, my good friend and, and colleague, Paul Brunswick, from the Two Rivers Health and Wellness Foundation, and I started kind of toying around with the idea of what's a good landing place for these. And we thought about uh, establishing FQHCs as a place that could house good quality HIV uh, care. I was working for the Pool Healthcare Trust and the Rotary Pool Foundation at this time and was uh, doing some work with Two Rivers. And we kind of uh, started convening some folks and we got all the, uh, or many of the, the local hospitals together and said, would you support this? And please, can we not uh, uh, get competitive over this? If we can all back this, we can establish an FQHC and then build off of that and make sure that every community in the Lehigh Valley has access to this. And it was a, it was a beautiful moment. I, I actually got three hospital administrators from three different hospitals to physically pinky swear that they were not <laughs> going to compete over the establishment of, of FQHCs. And uh, by 2012, we had the first access point, uh, neighborhood health centers. Uh, these folks have been rapidly expanding since then. And now you've got Valley Health Partners and Star Wellness providing some really good primary care to folks that may be in un uninsured or not insured, culturally appropriate, easy to access, affordable primary care. Well, you said a word, affordable, health care act. <laughs> yes, another touchstone into some really good work here. Yes, the Affordable Care Act made uh, insurance available to a lot of folks who didn't have insurance before. But uh, from, for us, one of the most important things it did was it required a good comprehensive community health needs assessment to be done every, year, every three years. Nobody was sure exactly how to do this. And the Pool Healthcare Trust took the lead, convened all the hospitals. And for the first six years of the Affordable Care Act, we conducted the community health needs assessment that was used by every not-for-profit hospital in the Lehigh Valley. One of the most powerful things that did was it allowed us to start showing the data that really kind of spelled out social determinants. You know, we, we could see that healthcare was having a major impact on um, folks with chronic disease. Where it was really kind of missing was we were really good at taking care of sick people, just not so good at keeping people from getting sick. And the community health needs assessment really helped us demonstrate through data, through stories, that if we really wanted to improve health, it was more than just providing good quality care. We had to get farther upstream. There we go again with that theme of farther upstream to get at root cause. Your mission on healthcare and ads really became data-driven, didn't it? it? We needed the data 
to uh, make the compelling case. I guess to make the focus, to find Absolutely. the doctors, to, Absolutely. To, to get the right Absolutely. types of people, providers to help these. Uh, Absolutely. And the data, you know, not only the quantitative data that really kind of spelled things out, but the qualitative data that told the compelling story. So social determinants of health, the focus of what you've been doing recently and your, more recently in your career how are we doing? And, and can you give us a deeper look into what's going on out here and what's the path forward? We're getting better. We're getting better That's at good this. To hear. Uh, yes, we. It's it's generational work, so it needs to continue. One of our uh, one of our our uh, uh, mottos is gentle pressure, relentlessly applied. You know, <laughs> we need to con- just continue to kind of keep this this forward momentum. Our healthcare system is starting to recognize the fact that we need to do more than just address the social needs of patients. We need to understand why are there so many folks with the same social need living in the same geographic area? So what are, the, what are those vital statistics of a community? How do we look at the community as our patient? That's going to be the best way to address some of these issues that, that we're talking about. When you talk about pressure, pressure on who? Uh, just that relentless, we, can, we can't stop. We can't, you, you can't do this for three years and then say, okay, we're done, and now we're going to move on to the next shiny object or the next, uh, the next initiative. So you're talking really about pressure on your, yourselves, uh, the pressure. Institute for Health. Uh, everybody, to yeah. To continue, yes. as well as those who need help. Yes, Yes. And, and one thing that, that we really need to recognize in this work is uh, we don't have all the answers and we need to stop pretending like we do. An important part of where those answers come from are those with lived experience, those from the communities that are most impacted by chronic disease and, and health disparities. So we've got to find ways of making sure that their voices, their ideas, their leadership uh, rings true in this work. And it's not just a whole bunch of do-gooders that sit from the outside <laughs> to say, we know what you need. So would you say that this is the activation of your collective impact program? <clears throat> You've been instrumental in putting this all together. How did you do that? That's uh, just a heartwarming story for me because um, I had the opportunity to be part of a Creating Healthy Communities Fellowship. And for me, it meant getting on a plane, flying to great places in the United States, hanging out with uh, like-minded people and learning from some of the greatest minds uh, in the United States. And I'd get back on the plane and come back here and I'd be speaking a foreign language. And when we were thinking about uh, you know, how do we impact on the silos, on the systems that just don't interact with each other, we know that healthcare can't fix all of our health problems. We know that education can't fix all of our education problems. It requires this cross-sector partnership if we really want to start making an impact. And we, we kind of took that fellowship model and said, what if we did it place-based and brought the experts here so that we could develop a cadre of fellows from various sectors who knew how to work together to address problems. Ron, we have about five minutes left. Time flies by when we're doing a, a show like this. You're you're going you're about to retire. What do you want? What I mean, what do you what do we want for the Lehigh Valley and for the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health? Uh, yeah, I came to the Lehigh Valley in 1980. I was going to spend two years here. 
42 years later, <laughs> I'm still here. Um, the Lehigh Valley is a remarkable place. I look at the rebirth of Allentown and the south side of Bethlehem and uh, Easton, and it's just been a fabulous place to live, a fabulous place to raise my family, and a fabulous place to do this work. I think because of the work of a whole bunch of people, we're in a really good place, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And I, you know, I call on my fellow th- uh, philanthropists and not-for-profit leaders and community leaders to just continue the work that we've, we've all been chugging along on for the last several decades. And, and I think the Lehigh Valley is only going to be a, a better, healthier place because of it. What would you like to say to your family as they've been with you on this career? Uh, you know, um, just incredible support from from them. I was told when uh, I started to work for a foundation that I would never tell a bad joke or never uh, have a bad lunch again. Uh, <laughs> uh, and my family keeps me grounded by reminding me that I'm just not that smart and not that funny. So I'm certainly grateful for for that. And um, you know, my family members have all been. Uh, human services education folks. So, you know, we get a chance to kind of talk about what we need to do, the role we play, the responsibility we have in the jobs that we've been blessed to have. What will you be watching in your retirement? What will you be observing in this space? Well, I'll be I'll be moving out of the area. Uh, my wife and I just bought a house in, in Vermont. And Congratulations. Thank you. We're really excited about, uh, about that. I will continue to look at the county health rankings and uh, the community health needs assessments. And I have so many great friends and colleagues here that I'll continue to stay in touch with. And I'm just going to watch the Lehigh Valley grow, develop, become stronger, and become healthier. Final thoughts. What are you most proud of? Fellowship is right up there. I mean, the things that that, uh, we kind of reviewed today, fellowship, uh, it's what we were able to do was provide some not-for-profit leaders with safe, dedicated space and let them do their thing. And boy, have they just, uh, the work that that the fellows have done in the Lehigh Valley has just been absolutely remarkable. It's getting stronger. We have uh, 70 plus fellows, eight cohorts, and uh, I say no end in sight. Any volunteering out there in the future? Oh, Are you gonna be absolutely. able to keep your hands out uh, of this? Greg, you know, you just can't stop doing this work. So I don't know what it looks like, but yeah, you you just can't. You can't. Uh, uh, this has become, you know, part of, of my fabric and who I am. So yeah, I'll find some way to stay involved in the Lehigh Valley remotely as well as uh, my new community in Vermont. Ron, you and Ed have been uh, terrific supporters of WDIY as we've tried to. Uh, bring the awareness of the social determinants of health to the Lehigh Valley community. I want to thank you for that. Thank you. You've given us a voice uh, and help us amplify the important message that needs to get out. So quite grateful for all your support. It's always interesting when you're, when you're, when you're doing a, a retirement program. Uh, fortunately, I don't have to do too many of them. But, Ron, we, we certainly wish you all the best We want to thank you for everything you've done here in the Lehigh Valley, you and your family, the commitment that you've made. Thank you so much. And one of the great things about WDIY is as a member, uh, I can stream it in uh, in Vermont. So I'll continue to listen. (laughs) Thank you so much. Ron, it's really been a pleasure and an honor to work with you here at WDIY and uh, at Ryder Pool and through the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health. You're listening to Health Beat.
right here on WDIY 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Greg Caponia. Happy holidays and have a great evening.